Welcome to On the Record with Furniture Today, a podcast that goes behind the headlines to look at the news and the newsmakers, the people and the personalities that give the furniture industry its unique flavor. I'm your host, Bill McLaughlin, Editor-in-Chief of Furniture Today. Hey, it's Chris Lamb and Emily Stalvey with MicroD. We're here to talk about MicroD's first ever user conference, the Drive Conference. Happening March 17th through 19th, 2020, here in Charlotte, we're hosting this event for our retailers, manufacturers, and partners in the industry to talk about your 2020 vision and how MicroD can take you there. Registration for this event opens October 1st. You can get more information at microdinc.com drive. Welcome to On the Record. My guest this week is Jerry Epperson, a member of the Home Furnishings Hall of Fame, gentleman with a distinguished career. Jerry, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. I'm flattered, Bill. So, Jerry, you've been in the business since, uh, according to your biography, um, since 1971. Yes. Um, what? How did you get involved with furniture? What What led you to um, string and... St- um, Scott and Stringfellow, and specifically furniture. How'd that come about? The uh, my father was uh, was a conductor on first the Virginian and the Norfolk and Western Railroad, and his route was to go from our hometown of Victoria, Virginia, up up in the mountains to Roanoke. Um, Victoria was halfway between Roanoke and Norfolk. And so they'd mine the coal in West Virginia and Virginia, uh, consolidated Roanoke, and the the railroad was all downhill from Roanoke to Norfolk. So they would just change crews in Victoria because it had been an eight-hour run. And my father, on that route between um, uh, Victoria and Roanoke, he could tell which furniture factories needed what, uh, Lee Industries, uh, the Lane Company, all these different factories. And Dad could talk about the furniture industry and tell you, you know, how well it was doing and uh, how many boxcars they needed and how much coal they needed for their boilers and all these different things. It was, uh, he had a good knowledge. When I went off to the University of Virginia, I changed to, uh, I switched into business uh, because I couldn't take any more French. I just driving me nuts. So I uh, I studied business, and most of my examples I used through all my different marketing and accounting and everything else were furniture examples, because it's really all I knew. And uh, that uh, led to going to graduate school. When I got out of graduate school, it just so happens that Levitt's furniture was one of the hottest stocks on Wall Street. It was a whole new concept. It was the first big box uh, that had all these products there, and it had an attached warehouse, so you could take it home that day. Very u- unusual. The first uh, instant gratification, if you will, in the marketplace, and all these other big boxes uh, really copied what the Levitz brothers created. Levitz was the hottest stock on Wall Street back then. It was selling 120 times earnings, uh, which for a simple retail stock was very high, and it took a lot of the public companies up to high multiples with it. Uh, Bassett would sell for 60 or 70 times earnings. Lane would sell for 50 to 60 times earnings. And a lot of the furniture companies went public in 1971 and 72. Uh, 
Lazy Boy, Flex Steel, uh, Howie Myers, uh, golly, I could go right down a list. And furniture analysts were very popular. In fact, I think there were 42 in the furniture research group on Wall Street at the time. I was just one of many. Well, at least when I, when Scott and Stringfellow hired me to be their furniture analyst, I knew some people in the furniture industry. And then uh, the people at Scott and Stringfellow, a wonderful firm, also gave me really carte blanche to go out and meet the ones I didn't know. So I traveled all over the country and met, uh, you know, different people in California and, of course, the lazy boy up in Michigan, went all over the country and met all the public companies. And one of the things I learned very early was that uh, the furniture industry had a uh, small number of public companies relative to the total size of the industry. The manufacturers, we didn't have many importers back then, the manufacturers were about 25 to 30% of all the all the furniture that was made, and the retailers were less than 10%. We really didn't have a lot of retailers. So it was, uh, uh, it was a fun group for me to follow. I felt like I knew them really well. And then a recession hit in 1974, and the stocks fell out of favor. Uh, you mentioned about our, my first underwritings or my first uh, transactions. My first public offering was taking Pulaski Public. And we took Pulaski Public in late 1971. And the stock, uh, w it was announced that the stock was going to have a big public offering. And uh, the stock, what little was trading at the time, at 18, went up to about 32 we did the underwriting at 32, and the stock went to over 70. And then when the recession hit in 19, late second half 1974, the stock went to three. So that, again, showed me the volatility of this group. We're either hot or not, and that's the way it's always been. We're closely tied to housing, and the Wall Street investment group, whether they are accurate or not, they perceive furniture as being really a play driven by housing. So when interest rates rise, because we're going um, we're going into a recession, when rates begin to fall, uh, somebody wakes up one day and says, you know, that's going to help the housing industry a lot. And so the first stocks you begin to see when interest rates fall is you begin to see the housing builders then you saw the suppliers of parts into the homes, the people that made the plumbing and everything else, like Masco. And then thirdly, you began to see the furniture stocks move. But the furniture stocks moved more rapidly than either the builders or the suppliers of the component parts into homes because they were very small companies with very small trading floats. So a little bit of interest rose those stocks very rapidly. And Peter Lynch, who was probably the most recognized investor of his time. He was the Warren Buffett of the 1970s. He ran the Magellan Fund up at Fidelity. And Peter Lynch said he loved these stocks because they were so volatile. And you took your positions when nobody wanted the stocks, and a little bit of interest made the stocks just double and triple. So you made a lot of money off of them. And he even recognized me in his book uh, on uh, investing that he put out in the mid-1970s, talking about how, you know, the one thing I knew was furniture. And along came with this the mattress industry, because back then we really didn't have a lot of mattress companies in the public domain. Uh, 
Ohio mattress, Ernie Wolger's company, was public, and it was a licensee of Sealy. But there really weren't any others. There was one waterbed company that was public briefly, but not a lot of mattresses. That came later. Oh, Simmons Mattress, too, down in the lounge was public. Why do you think so many companies, so many investment companies, whether it's private equity or conglomerates, have targeted the furniture industry yet not been successful? And you mentioned one, Masco, obviously. I mean, there's a number of others. Um, why do so many companies seem to want to be in the furniture business yet not be able to apply the same techniques that seem to be successful in other industries within the furniture industry? Bill, in 1967, before I actually began doing investment research, uh, Forbes magazine had a fairly lengthy article talking about how furniture was uh, American furniture industry was going to benefit so so very greatly when the baby boomers began to get out of high school and college and they had to decorate their apartments and their first homes and how this was going to be a booming industry. However, they pointed out in the article that the industry was highly fragmented. There really weren't a lot of big manufacturers. And as a result, the industry was highly fragmented. And uh, it also was primarily Southern and they didn't use the word bumpkin, but they implied that these were very unsophisticated companies. And it was just going to be a matter of who would come in and bring sophistication and modern uh, accounting rules and technology and all that into the furniture industry. Right after that, you began to see the first ones that kind of jumped in with both feet were anyone that had anything to do with the lumber or, or paper industries, uh, Champion International and uh, bought Drexel Heritage and Mead bought uh, Scott, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, that's right, bought Stanley. Um, golly, uh, one of them bought, uh, one of the paper companies bought Brown Jordan. Anyway, a lot of these companies were just bought up very quickly and very few of them, very, very few of them were successful in buying them. Uh, I flew with the um, one of the board members from Champion International, and they had bought Drexel Heritage. I flew with him, just happened to sit next to him. And I asked him, I said, why did you get rid of uh, Drexel? And by the way, you got rid of it for a lot less money than you paid for. And the, <laughs> the gentleman said, truthfully, once all the directors and officers of companies had decorated their homes, they began to look at the numbers, and it wasn't a company they wanted to have any interest in. The other thing that was true at that time was that we had a, a very strong reputation for being highly cyclical with big swings. Well, we did have a, a slight recession in 1970. We had a larger recession in 1974 that leaked over into 75, but it was largely caused, oddly enough, by over being over-inventoried at retail. The first half of 1974, Levitt's and the Levitt's look-alikes, uh, Wicks, Gold Key, which was started by Federated, there were probably 40 people out there building these massive 115 to 125,000 square foot uh, warehouses with attached, smaller attached showrooms to look like Levitt's, all 
working off this instant gratification phase and hoping to take advantage of all these young consumers coming along. Well, each of those stores had a this this massive warehouse. The warehouse was typically eight to ten times bigger than the showroom, and it was a, a high-level warehouse, and stuff was stacked to the roof, and everybody had all the brand names. Back then, Crayler was huge, for example, and Bassett, and Lane, and you know, a lot of the names we still know today. Well, in those Levitt stores and the Levitt's lookalikes, the consumer came in to the warehouse, walked through the warehouse to get to the showroom. And the reason was you wanted to impress them with all these brand names that they already had ready for them to take home today. <laughs> well, that, I guess, made a lot of sense to somebody. But when you think about it, it's the most inefficient way to possibly sell furniture. You've got all that inventory at every store location. It just didn't make sense. But Levitz was a hot stock, and it grew, and it grew, and it grew. But in the mid-1970s, all those store openings and all those stores needing so much inventory, our manufacturers got overbooked uh, on some of the companies. Bassett had a six-month backlog. If you didn't order today, it might be six months before you could get back in the queue to, to, to get furniture. So a lot of the backlogs were fake uh, or built up falsely, and when sales began to slow down and the orders began to slow down, everything kind of crumbled and our earnings turned really bad. And a lot of these companies saw that and said, uh-oh, I wish we weren't in this business anymore. So all of a sudden, uh, we saw all these different companies. I think I've got a list of 60 different conglomerates, which were very big back then, who had bought into the furniture industry primarily with manufacturers, but some of them were with retailers, and most of them wanted to get out. They wanted to sell and move on. So um, I, my, we started doing transactions, helping these people sell this division or that division, and it worked out really well for us. So here we are 50 years later. People still describe the furniture industry as fragmented. We're still talking about consolidation. What's actually changed? Bill, what happened was back then we were we were dominated by large family dom, family owned businesses, and the different families had competitive elements one to the other. Uh, Bassett and Lane were highly competitive even though uh, B.B. Lane had married uh, Minnie Bassett, and she was Minnie Bassett Lane. Uh, you know, they were intermarried, but when you, you, you didn't talk about competitive things at the dinner table, and it, it was very interesting to look at the different families and how the families would sometimes get together and join together on a factory or join together on a factory. Uh, chip mill or something like that, but they'd be fiercely competitive. And all these things had different family trees, uh, uh, Stanley, Vaughn, Vaughn Bassett, um, 
I think there were three or four other companies, all came from Mr. Bill Bassett, who would start investing in other people uh, building furniture operations as long as you were building them far enough away not to bother his labor pool. So that that kept going on, and, and the the businesses grew and competed with each other. And again, we were fiercely, fiercely domestic. We took advantage of our southern hardwoods and the fact that we had non-union labor. Furniture has always been a popular industry to teach, to teach an agriculturally driven economy how to work indoors with machinery and to make a product indoors. And that's a, a, almost all of our furniture companies started out by having people do that. Um, uh, I could remember laughing at uh, the senior, Mr. Doug Bassett, years ago, telling funny stories about him running a sawmill. And <laughs> they sold the ties to the railroad that were building the railroad through the valley that was owned by the Bassett family. And anyway, lots of interesting things. They gave the land to the railroad to get them to come down their valley instead of the valley that would have been a little bit more convenient next door because they wanted all the industry the railroad would bring. And that made the little um, Bassett, Stanley, uh, Martinsville corridor such a powerhouse in our industry for many, many years. You think that's why the the industry so easily translated to China and Vietnam, and that you both you, at that time you had a similarly agrarian society learning to uh, begin to work in factories. I don't think we realized as an industry how vulnerable we were. Uh, I certainly didn't. The idea of being able to make furniture, which is a relatively inexpensive product, make it thousands of miles away, package it so it could be uh, protected and shipped across the ocean here, just didn't seem to be a practical thing to do. And if you look at the very first people into the industry doing that, I, I think, of course, of the great Larry Moe, uh, and Moe's M-O-H, Larry Moe. Larry uh, saw an opportunity. He uh, was was China, mainland China born. He was reared in Taiwan. He came to the U.S. and went to uh, Wharton, uh, got a degree, went back and started in Hong Kong making uh, hotel furniture because Hong Kong was seeing an expansion and needed hotel furniture, so he started doing that. And he thought the inexpensive labor that they had gave them a competitive advantage. So he brought his uh, one brother, uh, Ronald, he brought him into his company and had him go to NC State and learn uh, furniture manufacturing. Now, again, Ronald is extraordinarily intelligent, uh, Harvard grad, and he's back down at NC State learning how to make furniture. The other brother, Ronald's brother, Lawrence, Lawrence was a uh, chemical engineer at California Institute of Technology. And Larry recruited him to go to Asia and look for a source of lumber because they really didn't have much except teak in terms of respected uh, lumber grades. And it was, it was Lawrence Zung who discovered that rubber wood could be taken. It's a very small tree, uh, 
but when the tree got to be a certain size, about 25 years old, it wouldn't give sap anymore, so it didn't have an economic value for making tires or rubber gloves or condoms, so they, they just t- chopped them down and burned them. Well, Larry figured out how you could clear-cut what little lumber there was in those trees, and since they were free, you could take that and use it in making wood furniture. So they started making wood furniture, and they started making it so that the furniture was made in components and shipped over to the U.S. And, and Universal Furniture, which was the, the name it grew to be known by, Universal had five facilities in the United States. They'd bring these component parts in, and it would be a, a wooden seat chair, and the legs and the back were pre-made, and they'd just glue it all together and make a chair, or they'd glue an occasional table. They'd put the legs on the tabletop. They did all that glued it together here in the U.S., and that way they saved on the freight getting it here. So, you know, that's how it started. And then as technology improved and logistics improved, they learned how to make a drawer, which was very difficult in the early days. They learned to make a drawer. They began shipping product over here fully assembled. And so that took us from the mid-1970s to mid-1990s when they started making leather furniture over there. The first upholstery came, came over here, and leather was very durable, and China already had a dominant position in shoes and pocketbooks and leather apparel, so they certainly had all the tanneries and everything they needed, so they started making leather furniture. Some of us remember when they made uh, furniture out of water buffalo hides for a while, but they began to make more and more leather furniture and got better and better at it. And when they realized they could make a pulse, make it leather upholstery and ship it over here efficiently, that's when in 2002, uh, the, uh, the China installed more upholstery fabric mills in 2002 and 2003 than the U.S. had in total. And by the end of 2005, they'd installed more looms than existed anywhere else in the world. So they suddenly became very dominant in making upholstery fabrics. And you saw most of our old names, like uh, Joan and others, our old U.S. fabric names just kind of disappeared because they were being replaced by inexpensive fabrics from Asia. So then we saw this big surge in leather coming over here. So if you look in the 1970s, about a little bit less than 10% of the furniture that was sold in the U.S. was imported. And all of that was the same furniture was imported in the U.S. as they sold domestically. Uh, furniture that was made in Italy for Italians was shipped over here. In the, it was the same exact furniture. And we had enough Italians and others over here who liked that styling that they sold that. There was a Korean company that brought in uh, Korean scale and sized furniture, and it was extremely successful on the West Coast because there were enough native Koreans who wanted that product. Well, over time, what Larry Moe convinced everybody to do is don't make furniture that looks like what you make at home. Make American-styled furniture. And that's when they started looking at the Broyhills and the Bassets and the Lanes and all our industry's leaders to look at what they were making. And so all they did was make what those companies were making cheaper and bringing it over here. And uh, 
several things happened. Some of those companies tried to fight them in price. They couldn't do that over time. Then as we began to get more and more shipments coming over here, and we were shipping less and less going over there, we had all these empty containers going from the U.S. back to, to China. That's when they started buying the lumber over here and carrying it back in these empty containers, which were very, very cheap. And then they started making the furniture out of our uh, native species of lumber, and they got better and better at that. So it was just fascinating to see these. Some of our American companies would operate their factory and import too. And what often happened was the imported product was priced so well that they basically ended up cannibalizing themselves with their own imported product. And we saw that happen over and over again. If your social media is not up to snuff, if your digital marketing needs improvement, please join us at Furniture Today's next conference, September 25th through 27th at Live by Lowe's in Arlington, Texas. So now let's fast forward a little bit to last fall with the imposition of tariffs on Chinese imports. What's your view on the impact, A, that that has had on the business so far? What are you seeing in terms of how that's affecting people? And if you were going to project forward a few years, based on your understanding of the historical perspective and how these, these movements occur, what's your view on what, if any, long-term impact these tariffs are going to have on the U.S. furniture market? Wow, that's a big question. Um, I believe that President Trump, um, despite his being so loud and boisterous, uh, sees us in a losing battle with Asia and feels as if, if we don't do something about it now, when will we? Because we're getting more and more and more dependent upon them and they just need us for our currency and our dollars and to be a market for what they make. So he's put these tariffs in to see if we can't negotiate some sort of uh, fairness or equality. Now, whether that comes about or not is, of course, the big question. I think the tariffs had made the uh, Chinese and soon other countries in Asia wake up and realize that the U.S. isn't going to be as... Uh, naive as we've been in the past, and that we will be able to uh, uh, work better deals over there. I think that's going to happen. And I think you're probably looking at something that may be okay, at least on the trade side, on an interim basis within a few months. And then longer term, I think we've got to work out the enforcement issues and the technology issues which are much more complex. I don't believe these tariffs are going to go away. I think they'll be reduced. I think the tariffs might be judged product to product in terms of what would be fair to U.S. manufacturers as well as to the Asian manufacturers. And uh, they'll be uh, negotiated again among the different agricultural products and so forth. But you look at the furniture industry. We're working on a report right now. It's fascinating. In wood furniture, imported wood furniture makes up 89% of 
what we sell in the U.S. today, 89%. So we really don't have a lot of U.S. manufacturers of any size left that we can protect. All we can do is make it uh, fair for those that remain. In upholstered furniture, there's, they do about 50.5% as imported, and roughly 49.5% is made here in the U.S. But we have two different upholstery businesses. We've got the upholstery that's manufactured and then sold to the consumer, and that would be like Rooms to Go or Art Van. They buy it in huge quantities, and they sell it to the consumer. And then you've got the other side of the business where it's sold to the consumer first, and then it's made. And that's where the custom features come in. The Chinese can do that. There's no question they can, but they don't want to. They like to make long production runs of like items. And so that's the part of the business that they dominate. And we still dominate basically the smaller batches. And that's why you see a lot of our uh, uh, factories up in uh, the Hickory area doing so very well these days. And uh, that custom business that's going out to the restoration hardwares and the, the crate and barrels and a lot of these guys are, are, are doing very, very well. Room and board does 95% of its uh, wood and upholstered furniture comes from domestic sources because they really don't want to buy on price overseas. And the 5% that they import is because it's made in Japan or made in Scandinavia and they can't find it. Um, you know, you, you can't find it anywhere in the U.S. So you got to go overseas to buy that particular product. So a lot of different strategies. Uh, I'm actually pleasantly surprised that we haven't been more seriously harmed so far, we're still living off of some inventories. Uh, we're living off of long-time relationships between re uh, retailers and their vendors. And I think a lot of the Asian manufacturers are going beyond what we had expected to maintain their floor space in the U.S. So they're willing to take losses or at least cut out profits on the near term. And, of course, you've got China helping them on that. So. It's. We'll see this work out. I think it'll. I think within a year, we'll have it normalized. There will be tariffs on some products, no tariffs on others. But to think we're ever going back to a period of time where there will not be tariffs, that's that's just not going to happen. Do you see any fundamental realignment of the primary source countries for furniture in the U.S.? I mean, obviously, China's imports or exports to the U.S. have declined somewhat. Vietnam's have increased. Certainly, when you look at the absolute scale of that, it's not in any way evening out yet. But do you see over time um, the sourcing equation change? Well, we're always seeing where a lot of the countries in Asia are putting in incentives. Thailand has put in a whole new incentive program and tax program to draw manufacturers to Thailand and not go to Vietnam to come to Thailand directly and they're giving a package it's called it's called Thailand plus and the same thing's going on with other countries over there who don't want Vietnam to get all of this business and Vietnam can't afford to get all of this business they've got other things that are going to Vietnam too and Vietnam really doesn't have the uh, infrastructure in the ports 
that China has to be able to do all this in place. It's much more expensive to make product in Vietnam than it is in China. So you have to look at the the, the benefit of moving to Vietnam. It isn't just a simple, there's no simple answer on where you should go and what you should see. But if you look at what's going on right now, you're seeing where in wood furniture, again, 89% of our wood furniture is imported. Vietnam's doing a pretty good job, as are Cambodia and Indonesia, uh, in taking business You know that, that has left China already. If you look at uh, upholstered furniture, there's no one that's uh, as big as China. China has controlled 70% of all the upholstery that's imported. But again, imported upholstery is only 49.5% of all the uh, furniture that we sell in the U.S. So the domestic upholstery companies are coming back because the tariffs are helping them. Now, if you look at metal and other furniture, uh, we're 95% imported. And the regulations that are put on bending metal, finishing metal, and those other things, that's not going to come back to the U.S. We are, we just are not going to have the environmental uh, freedom to bring that business back. We're going to let somebody else uh, ruin their, their skies and ruin their earth making those chemicals. I'd like to shift gears for a second and talk about demographics. When you were talking about the history in the 1970s, you talked about the impact of baby boomers. You've done a number of presentations over the last couple of years and talked about millennials, and you're very optimistic on their impact on the market. Why is that? Bill, if you look at we baby boomers, I'm one of the older boomers, and the impact we had on everything in our economy, the schools, uh, the the employment bases, the auto industry, the certainly homes being built, back in the late 60s and throughout the 70s and early 80s, the baby boomers, 77 million people, just came in and took over because the population bef- before them was only around 50 million. So 77, that's like 150% of the the business that they used to have. And we built all this retail to service that. And that single group has been the largest. They were, they were Not only were they larger than their parents, they were larger than the generation that came right after them. So they dominated from really 1965 through about uh, the year 2000. If you were serving the baby boomers, you had business improve year after year after year. Well, beginning around 2000, we saw that Generation X came along, and Generation X was decidedly smaller than than uh, the baby boomers. And the result was, and I don't think many of us really took the time to to analyze this, but all of a sudden you had this new generation come in that was dominating the peak years of, of spending on durables, and that's from 35 to 55. And there just weren't enough Generation Xers to come in and fill the shoes of the baby boomers. As we moved out of those age groups and the Generation Xers moved in, they just couldn't keep up with all that retail. It was devastating to retail. We just didn't have the universe of people to support it. And so that hurt real estate, that hurt employment. Uh, again, it was it, it hurt everybody. 
And then here we come with the children of the boomers, and they're the biggest generation yet. They're even bigger than the baby boomer generation. And they're coming in, but they're not in the prime buying ages yet. They're not dominating the 35 to 55 age groups yet. And as they come in and can dominate those ages, they're going to take over and take us to a note level of growth that we haven't seen since the 1970s. So that's probably going to be closer to, uh, you know, the, the 20s of, of the, this uh, century, uh, the 20s and early 30s. That's when they're going to take over. They're going to dominate the major spending categories, and people are going to be pleasantly surprised at how good business is and how the retail business recovers. Now, adding to the fact we didn't have enough people in the key buying ages, we've got this whole new retail force out there called the Internet, and that exploded on the scene, and it's, it caused a lot of disruption. But what's interesting to me is a lot of people just saying, oh, this is it. You know, the, what can you do? The Internet's going to be the be-all and end-all for, for us in retailing. And that's just not true. People thought at one time department stores were going all the business. I can remember back when Five and Dimes thought they were going to run all the business. Uh, it's not, the Internet's doing a good job, but the Internet's going to be replaced and it's going to be completely redesigned in, in the next 10 years, and we're going to be surprised at how it happens. I've got a theory that what's going to happen is instead of us, the consumer, having to go out to all these different sites, the consumers are going to be able to have sites and list what they want, and it's up to the retailers to come to us and make us offers, show us what they can do, show us how quickly they can get it, what kind of quality they offer, what kind of guarantees can they give us. And they're going to be courting us instead of us wasting all our time going out and trying to find them. And it's going to be another revolution in retailing. So that's a really interesting philosophy. Let's play that out for a second. So do what's the competitive, if that scenario were to take place where a consumer can start to put their preferences, let's say online or in some place, what's the furniture store's competitive advantage in that environment? Because right now they think well, of it as in-store experience, right? We get them in and we treat them better. How do they compete if, if what you suggest comes to pass? Uh, Bill, I'm sitting in front of a uh, seven-foot-tall National Mount Airy roll-top desk. And not only is the desk part uh, got the, the rolling part of it, but there's part in the top. I mean, it's just a massive desk, and I'm real proud of it. Um, Let's just say I'm a consumer, and I saw a desk like this, and I have a picture of a desk like this. I'd go out in the marketplace. I'd put that on my site and challenge everybody to come up with what I want and give me the best price and the best delivery that they could. And that's when you're going to see the, the individual furniture stores not only be able to identify customers that, where they have some sort of geographic uh, preference, but also they have it close by. The consumer can see it. You can get it to the consumer almost immediately, and that's going to be a difference with what the the uh, the the big internet guys are doing now. Does that require the kind of Levitt's model that you talked about early on, which is very uh, dependent on large amounts of inventory? Are we going to do you see the industry going back to more inventory heavy models? 
It can't happen. Uh, we have been spoiled by very low interest rates. And very low interest rates have allowed people to carry more inventory, both Internet people and bricks-and-mortar people, than, have, than really they should be running off of. You're 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 not being very efficient when your when your interest costs are virtually nothing, but I remember 1982 when the prime rate was 20 percent. If the prime rate's 20 percent, you can't carry a single piece of excess inventory. You got to get real lean and mean and not have your money tied up there. And so we've got an opportunity where you know we're going to have a competitive advantage. We don't have to have a lot. We just have to have to have the right things. Interesting. You, in general, have been very optimistic about the furniture industry, both in the longer and in the short term. As we keep hearing the word recession pop up in the industry, does that concern you, or do you think that that's overblown? We've had recessions, and you can look at the cause. Sometimes the cause was visible and could be foreseen, like what happened in 2008 and 2009, when the bank, banks got out of whack, when people got overborrowed, when we had the housing sector, we had so many homes sold to people who couldn't afford to buy them. And we just ended up in a mess, and it was devastating to the furniture and mattress industries because we require housing activity, we require fin bank financing to finance the purchase, and we require employees uh, uh, customers who are employed and doing well. And that recession hit all three of our necessities for a good business. Now, we're still recovering from that, I think. But most of the things we watch are doing reasonably well. Income's doing reasonably well. There are issues out there that really need to be addressed to help the consumer, like um, education loans. It's just making young people put off buying what they would normally be doing, going through the normal step of leaving your homes, going into a rental property, then going into a first purchased home, then going into a step-up home. They can't do that because they can't get away from the, that stupid uh, loan that they got stuck with for their college. And a lot of times those college loans were for profit colleges that didn't teach me anything and basically misled people, but that's another issue. So, you know, there are, there are points like that that are holding us back from a normal transition, but each of those will be worked out. What people keep forgetting is that we baby boomers have been the most successful generation ever, and we're going to be giving the millennials $30 trillion over the coming 20-some years. And there's $1.5 trillion worth of college debt. So, you know, that'll take care of that. And when those young people come into that money, they'll be able to buy things that they've always wanted but haven't been able to step up and buy. And this happens with every generation. Sounds like us baby boomers got to hurry up and get out of the way. I'm feeling a little, uh, little old and obligated there. Well, we find ways to spend money on our children or give our children money. Uh, again, you, you, you look at the way these monies are passed on and how we help them with, uh, you know, having kids and, uh, or even down payments on their homes or, 
things we can do to help them in the meanwhile. I'm I'm very positive on what's going to happen with this generation. And, Bill, you just have to look at the generations that we have now that have been brought up never knowing a home without uh, a computer, without having Wi-Fi. They are the most knowledgeable, the most efficient uh, they certainly are the most technologically advanced generation ever to come along, and they're going to do things with computers and technology that you know we just dreamt of. Our, our, my generation grew up watching TV, and we thought that was hot stuff because the generation prior to us grew up listening to radio. So, uh, you know, we're my generation is embracing computers, but really we hate them. They're not natural to us. You know, I thought I was sophisticated because I could operate a remote. Well, yeah, I'm in favor of remotes, see? Hey, my job growing up in my family was being the remote. Um, In our old TV, I laid on a quilt that my grandmother made in front of our TV and watched TV. And when Dad told me to change the channel, I'd reach up and turn the channel to what Dad told me to turn it to. I grew up. My profession was being a remote control. I see we we shared a similar early job in our uh, respective families. (laughs) (laughs) It has served me well. There you go. Well, it sounds like you're optimistic on the future of the furniture industry. I am. Every time I see the people, I took a trip in 2015. My wife and I drove coast to coast, and we saw new stores, and we met people that, you know, we knew at the furniture shows and met at the different conferences, but getting to see them in their environment and watch them as they proudly show off their stores or show off their factories and explain their big long-term plans, it was just eye-opening to me. And in most of these cases, I'm dealing with the children or the grandchildren of the people I grew up working with in this industry back in the 70s. That's terrific. Jerry, thank you so much for taking the time. My guest this week was Jerry Epperson, always informative, educational, and entertaining. Thank you so much. Thank you, Bill.